0: It is my great joy to welcome you to City Reach LA today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, before I begin today, um, I just wanted to know, we are a praying church. Amber noted that. And as as we lift up prayers throughout the week, again, we want you guys to share with us um, testimonies or things God's doing in your guys' life. Um, but I want to invite Amber back up to join me again. Um, God's been doing some big stuff in her life just over this season, and she just wanted to share a little bit of what God's up to. So I just want to give her a little space for that.
1: Thank you. Thank you again. So uh, we talked about testimonies in, uh, in our volunteer staff meeting, and I was yesterday outside, and I was running, and I was listening, Uh, to something. And and when I had originally talked about speaking today, I had thought about talking about all these prayers that God has answered. Apartment, um, money has happened recently, and uh, it's been pretty awesome. But the more that I thought about it as I was was outside yesterday, the more I thought about, um, I want to speak on something that hasn't happened yet, but I know it's going to. Um, And I want to... Uh, just say that, you know, we should totally praise God for the awesome things that are happening, Um, but I've been going through the hardest time in my life uh, in the last 10 months, and it's been full of heartache and disappointment and confusion and anger and resentment towards people, Um, and it's just been pretty devastating, and uh, the reason that I kind of want to stand here and say, thank you God, um, and praise God is because I know how it's gonna end for me and I think that that's really important to remember and all the times in the last 10 months every single day that I've had a hard time I can just hear God just trust me just trust me and sometimes I'm like am I telling myself to trust God or is that God but um, I really do believe that it's God because I've been able to let so much go to him Um, I know that God has a plan for my life and I I just want to say like God's put so many people in my path at work from this church uh, over and over that have cared for me and loved me in ways that like, I couldn't even imagine that they would show up in my life. Um, and I just know that he has some sort of glory that's going to come out of this part of my life. Uh, and I just wanted to stand here to, first of all, just say, like, thank you, Jesus, for, for this time that I'm going through. And it kind of feels crazy to say that out loud and to think about the things that I've gone through and to thank God for that. But I also think there's been so many things that have come out of it um, out of me and out of my life and the way that I've changed and the relationship with God and how it's changed and how I, was, I felt like I wasn't, but it felt like I was stripped of everything um, except God. And he was there. He never left my side. And I just want to encourage you that whatever you're going through right now, you have to know that God is there and that he's got a plan, and that he's in control when your life feels like, I tell this to Josh often, I feel like my life was like a snow globe, and then somebody was just shaking it up, and then everything was just falling around, and like just as the snow started to settle, somebody would shake it again, um, and I realized that like God is holding that snow globe. He might be shaking it, but he's still holding it. Um, and I, I just want to say that last thing, that you just, you God has a plan, trust him, keep your faith, pursue him. Um, and yeah, of course, I want to praise him for the money, and for the apartment that I found, and all the other things that he's been doing in my life, but sometimes um, you just have to be stripped to find that God's enough, and I want to leave you with something that I have on my mind very often, and I don't even know how I'm saying this, like, as I'm saying it, I don't even know how in my mind, after I think about my situation, that it's so easy for me to say, but I think about often, like, I'm just going to continue to rejoice, and I'm going to continue to trust God, and, and that's what I do, and it seems really like, yeah, of course you can say that, but, but it's really all I can do, so that's what I've been doing, and I, I just wanted to encourage you guys with that in my testimony, and, and just uh, say also, if you're going through something at this church, find someone to talk about, or talk to about your situation, because this church's family has really been my family in the last 10 months, so um, he's enough.
0: Thank you, Amber. Anybody else going through the grind right now, a little bit? Um, Sometimes we just need the encouragement of a friend, right? So thanks for sharing that, Amber. I'm proud of you. We are starting our March sermon series today, The Problem of Sin. Yeah, we're going for it. Here's the thing about sin. By nature, sin is problematic. Um, it, it destroys, it's like a back, black hole. It just likes to suck everything into its death um, to, to pull the light out of it. And what intensifies the problem is that in our culture, people don't want to talk about it. People don't like to talk about sin. You could talk about what's destroying you, but don't talk about what's destroying us, right? Don't talk about what's destroying me. It's a little smug to think you can call out my-ish. In our postmodern society, in our religiously pluralistic Society, the language of forgiveness is acceptable. That's nice, right? People grow. People become. We get, we get better. But talking about sin, that's a little offensive. Don't go there. No one has the market cornered on morality yet. So don't come in here like holding it like you, like you know what you're talking about because everybody gets a say in this. For one, the Quran might be helpful. For another, the Bible. For another, one of the many psychics that we see all, all over L.A., Right? Go for it. Go find your morality. Everyone has freedom to define morality how they see fit, as long as they don't break the law, of course. Right? But this approach to morality, it means no one gets to draw the line in the sand on sin. Which means, ultimately what it means is people are going to avoid the sin conversation. It means people are going to stay away from it. They're going to pull back from it, which is a problem because at its core, sin is viciously destructive. So if we ignore it, it destroys without any resistance. That's really dangerous. Now, what I find fascinating is many Christians don't even like to talk about sin. Many Christians want to stay away from sin. And here's my guess. Human nature tends to pendulum swing. So generations or a group of people will linger in an idea. They'll linger in a mindset, in a phrasing, in a a whatever for a season. And those following them will see the negative consequences of that. So what do they do? They swing to the other side of the pendulum, right? So for, like, so for Christians, for example, previous generations, they focus so much on holiness. They focus so much on like pounding the table about running from sin, maybe even running away from sinners, right? Stay away from sin. And then younger generations come up and see the negative consequences of, of what that, that mindset has produced and, and the consequences of that approach to life. And we're like, I'm not sure I want that. I'm not sure I'm down for how this thing went down. I don't like the results of your approach to faith. So what do we do? We swing to the other side of the pendulum. With the invention of the Jesus man, grace has just swallowed up sin. Sin has been defeated. So let's move on. Let's just get past the whole sin conversation. What's wrong with that? Jesus talked about sin. Jesus' followers talked about sin. And the language they used is, if you're a human, if you're a human being, you're a sinner. (laughs) All of us are sinners. We've fallen short. Every one of us is a sinner in need of grace. The conversation can't be sin or grace. It's both and. So we're going to talk about sin this month. So I want to start real basic. What is sin? Sin is the breakdown of wholeness. Sin is the breakdown of wholeness. You were created. You were designed. You were intended to be whole persons. Physically. Physically spiritually, emotionally, socially, whole persons. That was the intention. And sin takes your capacity for wholeness, for your capacity for goodness, and it pressurizes it. It it paints a coat of rust on top of it to eat away at it for the purpose of destroying your wholeness. So today, we're going to talk about what destroys us. We're going to talk about sin and how we settle for destruction. Today, I want to preach a message entitled Settling for Sin. Settling for sin. And here's where we're going to start. We're going to start where sin starts. All the way back to the beginning, to creation, where God created everything. God created everything. He started it all with a bang, if you will. And then he molds humanity, and he sticks humanity in in the middle of his creation. I want to talk a little bit about this creation story. This is fascinating. We find it in the book of, uh, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, which I think is appropriately named. And while Genesis is, is the first book of the Bible, it's not the oldest book of the Bible. The account we read today of the creation stories, yes, two stories, they were compiled as late as 500 B.C., and during this period, the Jews were exiled. They were very likely exiled in Babylon. In Babylon, And, and in, this, in this space, they were exposed to multiple origin stories, multiple creation stories. And one of, the most, one of the most popular origin or creation stories of that time was called the Enuma Elish. And it described creation as a consequence of warring deities. It's really fascinating. In this Babylonian myth, there are ongoing feuds. There's these bloody battles between the deities. You read of like this male deity who's who's in a war with a female deity. He rips her apart and he takes half of her body to create the heaven, half of her body to create the the earth. Or you read of the sea being a result of one deity ripping open another's mouth, and this is what pours out is the ocean, the sea. And what's fascinating is what the driving engine of this origin. It's violence, it's rage, it's destruction. These deities are just like people, in fact, (laughs) extremely competitive, driven by self-serving impulses. Now, because the Jews were exiled and they were in in this space, but they had an oral tradition, they passed things orally to each other. They didn't write too much down. They told stories. They passed their tradition, their values, their, their practices, their history orally, and they didn't want their origin story to be, to be fused together with other origin stories. So they thought, well, it might be a good idea for us to write this thing down. And in the Judeo-Christian story of Genesis 1, we see God creating from this overflowing abundance of love. From this reservoir of joy and creativity. Not competing deities. No violence. Just this compassionate God who shows up peacefully creating out of his good pleasure. Our God is all-powerful. He doesn't have to struggle against another deity to create something out of nothing. All he does is speak in Adam's form. He just speaks in Adam's form. That's a good wordplay, too, right there, right? Adam's form. Some of you guys are going to get that in the parking lot. The Judeo-Christian tradition says humanity's origin is not one of violence and destruction, but it's, one of bur- it's bursting with joy and creativity. Our starting point is not fear and hatred, it's love and abundance. And the Genesis story says we were created in the very image and likeness of God, who is infinite love. We were created by love, for love, to love. And we're formed in his his image, male and female, humanity, created like God, and collectively we reflect what God is like. What is God like? In chapter 1, we see him show up as creator in verse 1, as spirit in verse 2, as word in verse 3, which is what we eventually form into this idea of the Trinity. You think of like a three-sided spinner, like fidget spinner, right? You spin that thing. It's like this, these three corners appearing as one image. This, is, this It's this, this three-person colorful dance in the air without gravity. Like this is the image we get of our God in scripture, and he says, this story says, God makes us like him. Gosh, the grandeur of this truth. Our family of origin is divine. It's divine. We are created by a loving, diverse, dynamic God. Our core is original blessing, not original sin. Our starting point is very good, which is what God calls us. Not sinners in the hands of an angry God. We're his delightful obsession. And after God creates humanity in His image, He sends them out into this space to work and to create, first with cosmic hope, not with a problem to be solved. Our origin story, it's br- oh gosh when you read through it, it's just brimming with prospect, with imagination, with abundance. This was life in the garden, this was the good life, and then chapter three shows up. Chapter three in Genesis unmasks the sin and the downfall of the first human beings, but what I hope expressed today, it also expresses the sin and the downfall of every human being who's ever lived. Again, what is sin? God's design for his creation is shalom. It's wholeness. And sin is the breakdown of God's wholeness. It's the vandalism of God's creation. It's a parasite that eats at the life of what God created. God creates a whole bunch of good, meaningful, beautiful stuff, and he creates two human beings fresh in his image and in his likeness, and he plops them gently right into the center of that thing, into that little paradise, and he gives them a task. He says, govern the cosmos on my behalf. Work it all. Steward it all really well, and he says, do whatever you please, you guys, Like have fun, have a blast, have a naked party. I'm only asking that you avoid one thing. Just avoid one thing. Please, I mean this. Don't eat from that tree. The tree in the center of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from it, please. Everything else is fair game. Just don't touch that one. I know you don't understand now. You can't understand now. I don't want you to understand now because if you understand, it's too late. Please, trust my intentions here. So they're chilling in the garden. Everything is exquisite. And then chapter 3 starts. And here's where I want to jump in today. If you have your Bible or a Bible app on your smartphone, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis. First book of the Bible. We also have Bibles on the tables around you if you want to take one of those home. If you don't have one. And I'll have the text up on the screen as well. Genesis 3 is where sin shows up. And it's where the effects of sin show up. And what you'll notice is that interestingly enough, Mankind hasn't changed much since in the garden. This is the first two of us. Sin and the effects of sin in our lives are remarkably consistent through time. So let's see how this goes down. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You can't touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman that you put me here with, (laughs) she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate it. Let's walk through this. The writer notes that the serpent is one crafty beast. And this thing asks the woman, Did God really tell you that you can't eat from any tree in here? What a setup. And she bites. Oh, we can eat from trees in the garden. We just can't eat from the one in the center. God said, stay away from that one. To start, I'm always astounded that she's just in conversation with a snake. Right? Nobody ever points that piece out. Like, she's just talking to a serpent. I love this. I I mean, before the fall... In this garden, for some reason, either animals talked or serpents talked. She doesn't seem surprised. They're just going on a conversation right now. Thing says, really? You can't eat from that tree? You won't die. Like, I'm sure of it. In fact, do you want to know what the real issue is, woman? God just doesn't want your eyes to be opened. You eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. But what must it be like to know good from evil? The serpent's claim was actually true in part. It's counterfeit, but counterfeit's misleading because it's very close to the truth. His claim, you won't die, that's false. God doesn't want your eyes to be open, seeing as he does, knowing good from evil. That's completely true. We need to get what's happening here. In this moment, the serpent is convincing her to question God's intentions. Question God's intentions in order for you to make a decision that's going to destroy you. You following? Question God's intentions so that you can make a decision to destroy yourself. It's the enemy's oldest tactic, and he's still using it today, and it works masterfully on us. Question God's intentions. You don't really need to do what he said. God is not as good as you may think him to be. He's not actually about wholeness. He's actually about his own interests. He's just trying to protect his power. He's just trying to protect his privilege. You should do whatever you want. So she starts checking out this fruit. It looks normal. Not to mention, I haven't had wisdom-enhancing fruit. That sounds fun. Never tried anything like that before. Then it goes downhill. She eats it. She shares it. The world changes. Their eyes are now open. They realize they're naked. And now... Their instinct, their internal instinct says hide from each other. They now see themselves. They see each other. They see the world through a new lens, through a new paradigm. They see as God does. And what's their first response? Conceal the most vulnerable version of me. Hide it away. Naked. What was once beautiful and organic and in God's description good is now a source of humiliation. Disgrace. Is an option for us now. So much so that we need to conceal the most authentic versions of us from each other in fear of being truly seen by each other. And then God walks in on the scene. How do man and woman respond? They hear the sound of God and they scatter like like naive children running and hiding behind glass. <laughs> they hide behind trees that God created. <laughs> God calls to the man, where are you? The question more for man than for God. Man replies, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid from you. Fear is now a part of our story. God asks, who said you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I said not to? Man replies, the woman. By the way, who you put me here with, (laughs) she gave me the fruit, childish blame. If someone's fault, if it's somebody's, it's the woman's. If it's not her fault, it's your fault, God, because you gave her to me. God looks to the woman, what have you done? The serpent, he tempted me. And this is where it goes south for everybody. You keep reading through the end of the chapter, this is what you see. God curses the serpent. He informs the the man and the woman that childbearing and birth are going to be really painful now. He says, the ground is going to fight with you for food. He says, you're going to die eventually, and you're going to return back to dust. I made you out of dust. You're going you're to return back to dust again. And then he kicks him out of the garden. Sticks an angel with a flaming sword. Can't come back. Man and woman excruciating is now part of your vocabulary. The environment is in ruin because of what you've done. Everything has changed because of your disobedience. This one seemingly insignificant act, this decision has affected far more than you realize. Genesis 3 was a sad day for mankind. Sin enters our story. Fear, hiding, shame, blame, the abuse of power. and Nothing's really changed. Maybe we're a little less primitive, a little less barbaric. We've grown a little, a little wiser, but so has sin. We're no less susceptible. We learned the art of settling in the garden, and now it's our default setting. We traded in the garden for the experience of some enchanting fruit, and we continue to trade in the splendors of wholeness for immediate gratifications. We trade in the splendors of wholeness for immediate gratifications that pale in comparison to the greatness God wants for our lives. You know, my daughter's all about Disney. Aria is all about Disney. She loves her some Minnie Mouse. She loves her some Mickey Mouse. She loves her some Pixar. She loves her some princesses. And lately, she's been asking us like every other day Mommy, Daddy, can we go to Disneyland? And we're like, yeah, baby, it's so- like, as soon as we win the lottery, we'll take you there for a day. But they raise the prices again. Crazy. She gets presents like this every once in a while, this Minnie Mouse. Um, and then I tried to be a creative dad the other day. It was a couple weeks ago. Ran out of toilet paper, right? I was like, put some princess Band-Aids on this thing. I was like, yo, Aria, I found a, a princess wand in the bathroom. <laughs> We were running around the house, right? <laughs> she was digging it. It was awesome. It was awesome. We're playing with these princess toys. We're playing with Minnie Mouse the other day. I was thinking about something, though. I had this scene go through my head, and I was, I was just like thinking, how would I respond if something like this came up? I approach Aria next week, and I say, you know, Aria, your mommy and daddy, we decided something really big. We're going to take you to Disneyland. I know you've been talking about it like every single day. So guess what? You're going to go to Disneyland. I had to sell one of my kidneys so that we could go. But we're going to Disneyland next week, okay? And I watch. I'm just, like, waiting. I'm expecting to just see her, like, explode with enthusiasm. And she's like, it's okay, Daddy. I'm good. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, whoa, whoa. You've been talking about this for, like, months now. You want to go to Disneyland? She's like, no, it's okay. No, thank you. What are you talking about? Like, we're going to see Mickey. We're going to see Minnie. We get to go to Adventureland and get the frozen pineapple doll by by the tiki room. Guys got to go get that stuff. It's good. We're going to go meet the princesses. We're going to walk through the castle. She says, Daddy, I'm good. I got my Minnie Mouse and my princess one. Baby, that's a cheap imitation. This is a used toilet paper roll. Let's go hug the real Minnie Mouse. Let's go get a princess one from the castle. No, thank you, Daddy. I like my Minnie Mouse and my Princess One. I would be so confused. I would probably be frustrated. (laughs) You're trading a trip to Disneyland for a stuffed animal and a teepee roll? That would be insane of her. But friends, we're doing it. They did it in the garden, and we've continued the insanity. This is what sin does. It persuades us to to trade in season passes to the park for used toilet paper rolls. And then it convinces us it's worth it. That settling for sin is going to satisfy your deepest desires. We settle. We settle, guys. We settle for self-destructive, even others' destructive habits. While we're offered the, the, the fullness of life here. The abundance of life here. We're offered the joys of life in and with God, the splendors of abundant life, the wonders of wholeness, yet we settle for ways of thinking. We settle for for behaviors, for habits, for worldviews, for values, for addictions, for relationships that destroy our capacity for wholeness. And at some point, we need to grow beyond our adolescent behaviors, which is merely chasing pleasure and trying to to avoid pain, and actually grow up we got to grow up. we got to pursue lifestyles that produce wholeness. Approaches to life that reset our fractured way of living so we can actually be whole persons, the ones God designed us to be. The problem of sin is that it convinces us that broken ways of living will satisfy us. It's worth it. You can live broken and messed up and destroy wholeness, and it'll be worth it. So here's what we do, we compulsively seek out immediate gratifications for this moment. I just want to be satisfied right now to distract me from the buried pain that's deep down. And this is where addiction, this is where compulsion is born. Alcohol, food, sex, drugs, gambling, prescription, gaming, social media. These entice us because they momentarily distract us from the pain we're afraid to face. And what I hope to convey this morning is you have a choice. You have a choice. Yes, we need a Savior who's going to come and redeem us, who's going to reestablish our relationship with sin. Yes, and we're going to get there in following weeks. The Savior conversation matters little if you don't think you need saving, though. We have a problem hi, I'm Josh Houston. I'm a sinner. Hi, Josh, right? (laughs) If we don't start here, sin has its dirty little way with us. Brendan Manning used to say people in Alcoholics Anonymous are like way beyond many Christians because at least they start by saying they have a problem. Most Christians won't start there. We have to take responsibility for our actions. We have a choice in the matter. When God created you, he gave you a will. It's this power center that governs your decision-making. You get to decide your relationship with sin. And it's not that you're free to choose your relationship with with sin. It's your responsibility to choose your relationship with sin. Now, most people would probably admit, I'm just about wholeness. I love wholeness. This is what I want. I love hope. I love joy. I love abundance. Not many people actually want to self-destruct. For real. So we think we have noble values, we care about other people, therefore the problem must be out there. You know the best way to find out what your values are though? Look at your actions. You wanna find out what you really believe? Check out what you do. What have you chosen to care about, not just in thought, not just in word, but actually in deed? Because if your actions don't line up with your values, You don't value your values as much as you think you do. At some point, we need to choose new behaviors, not just desire new behaviors. Guys, sin is relentless. It doesn't stop. It never takes a a vacation from destroying you. It never takes a breather from annihilating your wholeness. And today, I want to challenge you to take an objective look at your life, like you're watching a movie or a TV show about you. And watch the academy awards tonight yes right like you're watching the movie or the tv show about you you, t- you zoom out what advice are you giving to that person what dumb decisions do they keep making over and over where are you settling for destruction where are you compromising your wholeness from momentary sparks of pleasure or simply trying to avoid your pain Yes, again, in later weeks, we're going to get to the Jesus part of the story. He redeemed us. He's he's the victor over sin. But first, we must sit with the garden part of the story. We compromised, and we're still doing it. We settle for sin, and it tears us apart. It tears apart our wholeness. What I want to ask you today, is this the life you want to live? Because you get the choice. Is this the life you want? I want to ask Josh and Jackie to come back up. We're going to go into a time of response and worship through song. What I don't want to communicate is, is like, um, like I've got this figured out. I'm just as broken, guys. This is, this is all we language here. We are sinners. We choose TP roles. This is what we do. I do it every single day. But what I wanna challenge you with is today, make the decision, enough is enough. This behavior, this relationship, this unforgiveness, this anger, this addiction, this fear, it's breaking me down and I'm done with it. Make a decision to stop. Stop taking the bait. Make a decision to make new decisions. I wanna wrap up today with a poem Portia Nelson it's called autobiography in five short chapters chapter 1 I walk down the street there's a deep hole on the sidewalk I fall in I'm lost I'm helpless it isn't my fault it takes me forever to find a way out chapter 2 I walk down the same street there's a deep hole on the sidewalk I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole on the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. Friends, it's time to walk down another street. It's time to stop settling for stuffed animals and use teepee rolls when we're offered abundance, when we're offered wholeness. Because God wants to show you the castle he offers you season passes it's time to stop settling for sin you were created for abundant wholeness let's live into it so god we show up to you completely broken completely flawed so in need of your grace god we can't even make the decision to walk away from sin in the first place without your help in doing so We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us. We thank you that you haven't, that you don't treat us based off of our performance now, God. That you've welcomed us in, but God, I pray for courage. I pray even now, Lord, that our people are sitting in these chairs, even people sitting and listening on Facebook Live, God, that you would be identifying and lighting up things in their life, decisions, behaviors, worldviews, whatever it is, relationships, addictions, these ways of choosing brokenness, ways of choosing things that are destroying their wholeness. God, I pray that you light that up for them right now and that you would empower them to release these things, to let them go and that they would live into your life, that they would live into your love, that they would live into your joy. I pray that today things would die. Things would be laid down in front of you, God. And that we would come alive in you. So give us this strength. Give us this courage. Give us this power, oh God, we pray. We ask this in faith, Lord Jesus, in your name.